Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Sarah Lewis, author of the new book, Spacious Minds, Trauma and Resilience in Tibetan Buddhism. Sarah Lewis is Associate Professor of Contemplative Psychotherapy and Buddhist Psychology at Naropa University. We spoke to Sarah about what inspired her to write her book, how Tibetan Buddhists treat trauma differently than Western psychologists, and the ways in which her research will help shake up the field. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, congratulations on your new book, Spacious Minds, Trauma and Resilience in Tibetan Buddhism. It's hot off the presses and is available everywhere now, online and at, and at bookstores around the country and around the world. I had a question, first question, what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um, you know, I think what really inspired me to start doing this research was my own work that I had been doing as a psychotherapist before I, and kind of alongside training as an anthropologist. So I'm a psychological anthropologist and I'm interested in concepts of mental health and distress and healing across cultures. And then alongside that academic work, um, I was working as a psychotherapist in community mental health and, um, you know, working with a lot of people with trauma and depression and anxiety, all the kinds of things that we go to therapists for help with. And, um, you know, so I had this longtime interest in, in psychotherapy and mental health, but also, you know, kind of saw the limits of that practice. And, you know, through that work, I became interested in meditation and mindfulness, which is now really considered, you know, in many circles, an evidence-based practice uh, for clinical, clinical work of different kinds. And, you know, through my own kind of work as a therapist and as a meditator, began to develop an interest in, you know, where some of these practices that I was learning about, where they came from. And, you know, so I think it was really through that uh, mental health practice, you know, itself that led me to become interested in, in Tibetan Buddhism and to exploring as an anthropologist you know, what, what some of these practices are in, in local settings. Interesting. Interesting. What way do you hope your book will make a difference in your field? Um, yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, having just launched this book, it's always like kind of a mystery of like, who will read it and where, where will it go? And, you know, sort of where, where will it travel? Um, you know, so certainly in thinking about the broad field of global mental health, you know, of which I see my work being situated within as an anthropologist, but also as a mental health practitioner, you know, so I do continue to also have a, a clinical practice. Um, I hope that it will make a difference in terms of advancing or understanding, you know, both of definitely of trauma, but also of resilience, you know, which I think is something that really has kind of, you know, become a, a global interest in many ways and, and something that I feel like, you know, sort of a new or more recent interest within mental health circles is this idea that, um, you know, talk therapy is not necessarily the best way to approach um, healing from trauma. And that's something that I really learned about through doing my field work. And, you know, in the book, 
there's some moments where I kind of present the Tibetan Buddhist ways of understanding trauma and, and healing from trauma and looking at resilience almost as in opposition to Western forms of psychotherapy, which of course, you know, usually involve talking and sort of processing past events. And so in the book, I describe, you know, kind of a tension between those two. Um, but it's interesting to me to see that more recently, there's a lot of emphasis on somatic-based approaches to trauma, you know, and really looking at how trauma is held within the body. Um, and actually these, you know, very standard forms of psychotherapy that many of us are familiar with, say in the U.S., you know, maybe, maybe are not actually the, the best way to approach trauma. And a lot of what, you know, some different neuroscientists and clinicians are saying actually is pretty similar to what some of my Tibetan Buddhist interlocutors describe throughout the book. So that's, you know, kind of interesting to me that that's on the horizon. So let's say, for example, someone was in a traumatic experience. Let's say someone ran a red light and smashed into their car and they were severely injured, but then they survived and they're recovering but there's obviously a traumatic experience that still haunts them. How, how would you uh, explain the Western approach? How is that different from the Tibetan Buddhist approach to, mm -hmm. to treating this person? Yeah, well, one, you know, one big difference that my Tibetan interlocutors wouldn't remind me of all the time is they would say like, yeah, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> like the Westerners that we meet, they seem to have this idea that like, we can get life just so, like we're just on the brink of making life perfect. <laughs> Once I do this, you know, then everything will be in place. And they found that kind of amusing. And my Tibetan friends and neighbors would kind of tease me for that and say like, wow, Westerners really like, you know, in some ways are like not understanding that suffering is a really ordinary part of life. And, you know, so, so for any Buddhist scholars listening, you know, they'll know that this is known as the first noble truth, the, the truth of suffering. And that's a really important point that I make throughout the book, that the expectation of suffering and seeing suffering that happens as ordinary, you know, and not something to see as like, oh my God, you know, this is so shocking that something bad has happened but actually use it as a way to connect more deeply with others. So that's the first big difference um, is that that really is built in, you know, that I think Tibetan Buddhists don't, um, you know, these are religious ideals. So it's not that all Tibetans are kind of doing this perfectly, right? But built into Buddhism is this idea that we have to contend with samsara. And samsara is this endless cycle of rebirth, which is fueled through karma and a misperception of reality. So the more we resist suffering, you know, the, the more suffering we actually have. Um, you know, interestingly, I noticed that you use the, the term uh, survive or thinking of being a survivor. Mm -hmm. And part of what I talk about in the book is that that's a very modern idea. And it's, um, or we could say it's a very contemporary idea. And it's really an idea that's kind of coming from North American and European ways of thinking. So in describing this idea of being a trauma survivor to some of my Tibetan friends and neighbors and people who I interviewed, 
they really pushed back against that idea saying that like, wow, you know, taking on this identity as a survivor, they felt like was really antithetical to suffering. And the reason for that is because they felt like it solidified something, it solidified an identity. And they said, wow, wouldn't it be better to see that that event that happened in the past is it's impermanent, better yet to think it's illusory. Right. And so this is getting into these Buddhist ideas of impermanence and emptiness. So like the events that happen and even the person who they happen to, there's, you know, this idea of emptiness or impermanence within that. And they would say the more that you can, you know, see these events as something that has already happened, it's, you know, it's not real now. And in fact, there are some elements that weren't even quote, you know, real at the time the more that you can sort of move past past events, you know, the, the more resilient you'll be. So the, the title from the book Spacious Minds comes from this idea that I learned about, which in Tibetan is called Sempa Chembo, and that just means literally vast, big, or spacious mind. So it's this approach to thinking about difficult things that happen in our life in this big mind kind of way. And a major element of that, that idea of a big or a spacious mind is seeing that things that happen to us are actually not unique. Um, so, you know, there's some part of that, which I think Westerners kind of bristle against you know, because it's almost like, wait, so are they saying, you know, that bad things that happen, even trauma and torture, right? So that's a big part of this book is talking about these, you know, political refugees, that somehow things that have happened to them um, is ordinary, in a sense, you know, or is something that is not unique to them. And so that is an interesting question, I think, of like, why that would lead to resilience. Interesting. Yeah, I can see the bristling because people, it doesn't feed their ego that they're somehow special in their unique um, suffering or pain. Mm -hmm. um, but I can see the other side, how, how freeing that would be. Um, yeah. That perspective. Mm -hmm. um, in your practice, how have patients or clients experienced this bringing in spacious mind into the equation? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, a question I get asked a lot of like, oh, as a, you know, anthropologist, but also a therapist, can you import these ideas into a Western psychotherapy practice? And there's some ways that I think no. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like we don't have the same ideas of karma, of emptiness, of, you know, past and future lives, right? And then in other ways, I think there are some ideas that can be incorporated. Um, you know, so for example, learning to see things through another person's point of view. So a lot of um, Tibetans who I interviewed, you know, even about things like torture and imprisonment, they would say like, well, you know, sometimes we would give each other advice in prison and say things like, you know, this prison guard who's, you know, beating us or, or torturing us maybe he's also a father and he's also a loving friend. Maybe he's here because he needs this job, like to feed his family. That's not excusing what is happening or saying that it's okay 
but it's seeing that, you know, our own vantage point is just one view or one perspective. And this is linked with, you know, all kinds of Buddhist ideas, again, about emptiness, of seeing that it's, it's not that our view is like, wrong or doesn't matter but it's just one perspective right so it's like there's no one i mean so is this person is he a loving father and friend or is he a prison guard well he's both right and that depends on the vantage point so this is another example of kind of creating you know this more spacious or flexible mind you know so to your question of like well could any of this be kind of brought into you know western psychotherapy practice that's one example where I think that's something that, you know, we could learn from and, and benefit from that idea, you know, of seeing like we don't have to discredit our own views and our own perspective, but learning to see that like we kind of suffer more, you know, the more fixated we are or the more. So Tibetans call this freedom from fixation, freedom from fixation. Mm. learning how to kind of broaden out you don't have to abandon your view but you can also see like it's it's just one perspective and then healing or resilience could come from you know creating some more space around that wow yeah that's exciting i mean i know that for example acceptance and commitment therapy has ties to buddhist mindfulness practices and so buddhism is making inroads into psychotherapy and and this mm -hmm. whole idea of seeing a traumatic experience as empty. I can see the bristling, but again, you can see also the power that that holds, where you can step back and see the big picture and not get stuck in the, in the suffering. As you said, it it's ends the fixation uh, of the trauma. Yeah, and, you know, definitely. Very powerful, very powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and controversial. Which leads, Definitely. <laughs> which leads to my next question. In what way do you see your argument being controversial or one that shakes up preconceived ideas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that question. And it's a topic <laughs> that interests me a lot. Um, so I open the book with an anecdote that, you know, I've discussed in different talks that I've given before. Um, and it is something that people yeah, it's like, you know, I think it kind of like shakes up our ideas in some ways. And so I opened the book by describing this monk who I interviewed uh, named Sonam Tashi. And he describes using his time in prison as a retreat house. And yeah, and he talked about like, yeah, you know, I was in prison. So he was putting up political posters around his monastery in support of the Dalai Lama and um, so he was imprisoned for that, you know, basically accused of being a political dissident. And so he talks about trying to relate to prison as a retreat house and a time to do various Buddhist practices. Um, and one quote that I have from him in the opening is he says, if we have to stay our whole lives here and even die in prison, then it's not really prison if we use this experience to develop compassion. Wow. So, yeah. Um, and so some of the questions, you know, that this raises for people, you know, particularly if they're kind of oriented towards social justice, um, you know, and kind of thinking about, um, you know, oppression in various ways, is I think it, it raises this question of, you know, what some scholars call internalized oppression. 
Um, and, you know, people hear this and think like, wow. And, you know, instead of just saying like, I'm going to use this time in prison as a retreat house, wouldn't it be better, you know, for us as scholars or for these Tibetans themselves to be looking at, um, uh, political violence, right? To be looking at, you know, sort of the global refugee crisis, to be looking at, um, you know, various forms of political oppression and that somehow talking about, you know, looking at the ways that people work with their minds within these circumstances, I think leaves for some people kind of an uncomfortable feeling, um, you know, and, and a sense that like, well, where's, where's the resistance? Like, isn't this, you know, just uh, victimhood or, you know, again, this idea of internalized oppression. They're not fighting back. They're just accepting the reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what's kind of interesting about the Tibetan case is that they're doing both, right? I mean, the, the sort of fight for uh, Tibet, you know, is a very globalized movement. And so it's like both are happening. And that's kind of interesting to me. And something that I talk about in the book is that some Tibetan activists have actually begun using the trauma narrative, you know, which, as I say in the book, is really kind of a Western idea, the the creation of a trauma narrative. But some Tibetan activists are using it not for political healing, but for political aims, right? So they've learned that a successful human rights campaign is really predicated on the trauma narrative, and that that's a very specific way of, you know, speaking to the veracity of suffering, of deservedness. Um, you know, and there's many other scholars within anthropology and, and other disciplines who have noted this elsewhere as well. We're in a, a particular global movement, right, where there's a very specified way of um, sort of garnering international support. So if you look at the Tibetan movement, say, in the 1970s or 80s, a lot of the narratives were focused on um, land rights, you know, and sort of pointing out like the way that, you know, the map has changed over time. And, and then there was a certain shift, um, you know, in the, the 1990s and, and early 2000s, like really where it was kind of the, the rise or the elevation of, of the trauma narrative. Um, so that's kind of interesting to me that, that both are, are happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, we've really just scratched the surface. And, uh, you know, I think, I think it was uh, Carl Jung that said that, you know, Buddhism has come to America in the next 500 years is, is we'll see how it, it impacts the, the culture. I mean, it's, it's infiltrating in all areas. And in this particular case, uh, specifically with psychotherapy, uh, the impact is already being felt and will only increase. And you've really shined a, a amazing spotlight on uh, Tibetan Buddhism and its role. Uh, it's a different way of thinking uh, or experiencing trauma and resilience. And I think a lot of people will find it fascinating. So thank you so much for your contribution. Well, thank you. And it was great to chat with you. It's great chatting with you. And uh, yes, congratulations once again on your book. Thank you. All right. Take care. That was Sarah Lewis, author of the new book, Spacious Minds. Trauma and Resilience in Tibetan Buddhism. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on our new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. 
If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.